today on Acme's Daily. Focus for uh, for trading for ethanol, and we saw the basis for Rule 11 spike uh, about uh, six months ago. Um, so if you're exposed to that basis, obviously, you need to find a way to mitigate your risk. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Delaney Howell here on the Agnews Daily Podcast, joined by Elaine Cub. We've got Elaine on again this week because it's International Women's Day, so I felt it was fitting to have a woman co-host with me. Elaine, thanks so much. Absolutely. Thanks for bringing women's voices to agriculture, Delaney. You yeah. do a good job of representing. Oh, thank you. So do you. Oh, yeah. I think it's good that... Um, well, that when I was thinking about the International Women's Day... Mm-hmm. You know, I think there there's um, sort of a story going around agriculture that women are more active now, or you see more women mm-hmm. now. And I don't know that that's necessarily true, right? They've always been. I think yeah. my mother, maybe it's just more publicized now. They think women are more willing to to take to claim right. the roles that they've always been doing. I've always seen women working cattle mm-hmm. and helping in the field or working in the field. And I think especially in International Women's Day, I think there is probably a and it's my understanding that actually 60 to 80% of the food that's produced all around the world, so internationally, hmm. a majority of the actual food that's grown in agriculture is done by women. Well, I, I am not surprised by that because especially when you look in countries like in Africa, it's so common for the women to be the main preparers of food, the ones that are going to gather the food because the men are trying to work to have some sort of income, but the women are the ones that are tending to the gardens or to their farm and agricultural production. So I'm not surprised by that at all. Yep, yep. That's that's what we see out in the rest <laughs> of the world. And yeah, the maybe the US, is, the U.S. maybe is not the norm as far as that goes. Yeah, I used to think... So I, I've, I went to Africa a couple of times to do grain market development trips, and I was going to say that, gee, the United States is actually farther behind <laughs> in, the, in <laughs> getting women to agriculture meetings because you'd go to the meetings mm-hmm. about the grain markets, and they were largely... Um, attended by women which is great and we don't see that at market meetings right. in the midwest yeah. i don't I mean, see when that we travel much. around i'm sure you see it too when you're traveling and speaking to farm groups it's men yeah and majority are like 40 plus mm-hmm. but not a lot of women i see more and more women which is good but i so yeah so i was gonna say oh maybe africa's really ahead of us on the game but they have their own problems it's mm-hmm. like the women would come to the meeting but then not be willing to speak up because oh. they don't want to speak up in front of their yeah. neighbors and cousins and uncles and such. So I think I think that's true of U.S. farm women is if they do come to the meeting, they're the they're ones. Speaking. <laughs> absolutely yeah. They're speaking. They're not afraid them. to ask questions. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Well, it's exciting. Inter- happy International Women Day to all of our Ag News Daily women listeners. That's for sure. For sure. Well, uh, Elaine, should we just get right to the WASI report? We had that come out earlier this afternoon. What were the big surprises there? I don't know that I was surprised by any. Actually, I was surprised by one thing, and that is the increase in U.S. corn ending stocks. Yeah, I was surprised by it, too. The market wasn't terribly surprised. We right. didn't get a huge reaction price-wise, which is good. But, yeah, they increased it 100 million bushels. Mm-hmm. Do, you know, I, do you know why? What did they do? Well, from what I can tell, because they pulled down ethanol production oh. and exports. That's fair. Well, the ethanol thing is fair. I mean, mm-hmm. there, that there's evidence that that you know stuttering uh, some of these plants and the profitability situation isn't phenomenal for ethanol. So that's that makes sense. But the exports, I thought we were doing quite well. I in know. Corn exports. I was surprised by that, and it's very fitting that we're having that ethanol discussion today because for today's Friday episode, I actually got to interview an an ethanol trader. He does physical ethanol trades and on the paper too. So interesting and timely for today. We did have this conversation before the WASD came out. 
because we had originally scheduled it for 11 and it's like, oh crap, we probably shouldn't talk then because we've got to look at the markets and watch the WASD there. So, Well, I'm really looking forward to hearing that interview because getting ethanol traded around the world and exported, mm-hmm. that is huge. Yeah, that is we the talk huge about opportunity for the corn market yeah. to be exporting corn in all yeah. forms. Yeah, and, and he flat out says, I don't want to give too much of the interview away, but he said, you know, we've hit our, like he said, this is an unpopular opinion, but he thinks we've hit our stride for ethanol. There's really no more increase in domestic supply or in in domestic demand right now even with e15 it's really got to be from a pickup in exports and probably a pickup from exports to china yeah asian countries well that's really similar to some of the livestock markets too right where Mm -hmm. we don't expect to see a big change in domestic demand we don't expect a boost from that but we do expect to see continued and more and more Mm -hmm. international demand for our our good beef products yeah absolutely so other than that surprise to me what was there that jumped out that you think's worth mentioning for from highlights from this was report well i would sort of be picky about their brazilian soybean production number which i think they put at 117.5 yeah i think that's right 0.5 uh-huh yeah which i think some private estimates um and just stories on the ground make you think that it will still come down from that it could be as low as 113.5 okay. we could see that in in future months and that that's a pretty typical way for the USDA to do it is to make these changes very conservatively, Mm -hmm. very slowly. So I think that might help to explain why the soybean market sort of discounted that Mm. rather bearish number. Okay. Those are the big big takeaways for you, though. Yeah. Okay. We've also got the cattle on feed report coming on at 2. I'm going to save that for Monday's market discussion because I'm not going to just throw you to the wolves on that one. Well, I haven't seen it yet. We don't <laughs> well, know. I know. We don't know. At the, yeah, at this point in time, we haven't seen it yet. But when it does come out, we'll uh, we'll just save that for Monday. Yeah, going into it, the cash the cash business that was transacted on Thursday was just steady with last week. And we saw you know a cold storage report that showed expanding supplies of, of beef in cold storage. So I think the packers, unless something really strangely bullish comes out of that Catalan feed report, which is not expected. I think the Packers are have the upper hand here to keep things stable. Okay. All right. Well, we will talk about that on Monday. Just jumping into some news for today, other than today's WASD report. Um, I've seen reports today, Elaine, that said that March 27th rumored meeting that was supposed to happen in Florida is not going to happen now at the end yeah. of March. Are you hearing that as well? Yeah, the Financial Times reported that, that now it has been, the March thing is off the table and now it's just some unknown future mm-hmm. date, just some date down the road. We this seems con- to be a common theme with <laughs> Chinese negotiations about, you know, they promised to make this purchase, but on down the road, we don't know a date. Yeah. It just seems like sometime down the road. Yeah. And is that why we had such a, I guess, boring week in, in the soybean markets in particular until today, really? We didn't see a lot of volatility this week because of no trade news? Well, yeah, or or trade news that just keeps on being delayed. We we do still see, like in the in the soybean options market, there still seems to be this expectation that someday down the mm-hmm. road, someday there will mm-hmm. be a boost in soybeans that would bring it back into line with their historical ratio to corn. But not today, not mm-hmm. this week. Like you mentioned, everything's just pretty flat. Well, in talking about that too, that getting back to that corn to soybeans ratio, I've been having a lot of discussions, and I, I feel like you and I have talked about this too, the future of the hemp industry. And there's a little bit of news today related to that. They are There's a coalition of farmers and industry stakeholders essentially working to form a trade organization or a commodity group, Is fr- from my understanding, that they're going to set up there and represent that commodity in the nation's capital. 
I've been having this discussion, quite frankly, with a lot of traders and producers saying, you know, once we get the regulatory thing figured out, once USDA sets some guidelines and, and figures out how do you determine the difference between hemp and marijuana, I've had people say they think even states like Iowa could just move away from soybeans and start growing other products like hemp and corn and make those two the top commodities for I the state. I don't know what acreage necessarily would be required to meet whatever the ultimate mm-hmm. demand is. So I don't know that I'm expecting it to be the next soybeans. Right. But certainly it could become part of the mix. And I think that's fantastic that they're forming a trade group because that's very much needed, I think, among the politicians, that ignorance, like you mentioned, of not knowing right. the difference between the two varieties. Mm-hmm. So, And we see uh, as a case study, think of the good work that the corn group, corn growers have been doing, National Corn Growers Association, Iowa Corn Growers. This week I was I did a couple of events for Iowa Corn Growers and just highlighting the trade development work that they do going to Mexico, going mm-hmm. to other countries, that, that the ethanol, again, through the yeah. upcoming interview. Yeah. So if you had a group like that for hemp that was helping politicians understand the market and building the market, uh, helping processors, getting some funding, getting everything up and running, that would be absolutely crucial to making that a real deal option for farmers right. to include. Right. And, and maybe giving it, legality is not the word I'm looking for, maybe give it legitimacy? some more leg. Yeah, legitimacy. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So that's what I had on the hemp front. When we're talking about things on the trade front, it looks like we're seeing some, I guess, news-ish come out about the EU trade deal. One thing I thought was interesting today, Cecilia Malmström, who is, of course, the EU's uh, trade commissioner, made comments that the EU also supports what the U.S. is doing with China and also believes that we need to hold them accountable and and really come together, you know, on one front to make China play by the same rules as everybody else. I thought that was interesting that she publicly made a comment saying, here's the the exact quote I was looking for, we are committed to tackling the distorting practices of China, and we must make sure trade remains free and fair. It is clear that no matter what happens in terms of our relationship bilaterally, we must continue to work together on China and the WTO. Absolutely, and I think, so the Europe's in that... um other countries, Canada, Canada is obviously mm-hmm. on our side in right. this one. Absolutely, there is sort of an international consensus that China should rein in or control better its commercial property theft or mm-hmm. uh, it, whatever we want to call it. Interestingly, I think um, I read, and I can't remember where, and I don't have the quote in front of me. You know, <laughs> I'm one of those people. Uh, that So the Chinese legislative body is meeting this week, and even oh. they, that's on their agenda is to address it somehow, is to, to make perhaps it'll just be a token gesture. Mm-hmm. Maybe it won't be real reform, but they are willing to address it, or they want to at least communicate to the international world that they are going to do something different about their, their trade um, their trade technology transfer yeah. policies. Yeah, it just it just still like blows my mind how they're considered a developing country. And I know that's I think it's self designated hmm. within the WTO rules, but it's like how I mean they are still growing and developing, but they're mm, pretty sophisticated. One and two. Yeah. I mean we battle with them for number one and number two economies in the world. So how is that considered developing? Yeah. Yeah, and you see, I mean, you see just video footage. I haven't been to China. Have you? Have you been to China? I have not. We should. I know. We should do a. We should do a trade. Let's what do, do you that. Call it? A, a mission. A mission. Yeah. 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 Um, no, I haven't been there. But the footage you see of 
it's it, the industrialization, the skyscrapers, everything is pretty sophisticated, built up. Like you mentioned, it's it's not what we picture as a, a dirt developing right. nation. Yeah, I mean, I guess they don't really show the the countryside as much. They show the commercialized aspects of China when you see it in the news and in footage and stuff, but. I don't that's know. That's true. That's true. And I think that's another thing that their legislative body is potentially addressing in this session is the idea of, of getting some better agricultural finance to the rural areas that you mm. mentioned are, are kind of undeveloped mm-hmm. still. Because if they would have the ability to use their land as collateral to get equipment loans and then start growing corn and soybeans in the way that we in North America grow corn and soybeans with large equipment and large tracts of land very efficiently, mm-hmm. that would massively increase their production capabilities and decrease their need to be buying soybeans yeah. from the United States. So it's good and bad, probably. Oh, yeah. Aspect. Well, I mean, good perhaps, I think, from a humanitarian aspect, I yeah. think it would be nice. But from a soybean trade, yeah. Eh, yeah, yeah, market share. Yeah. And, of course, they've got a lot of ethanol in the news today. They've, uh, of course, got that ethanol mandate by 2020, which I'm going to talk to Jordan about here in just a minute. But I thought this was a great statistic, and he does mention it, I'm pretty sure, in today's interview. U.S. ethanol exports topped 1.7 billion gallons in 2018, a 24% increase over 2017, and this is a new record year when you look at ethanol production in this in the country. Wow. Good so for us. We're continuing to move right along, but margins are tight now. We're seeing ethanol scale back. We're seeing plants go offline. A little uncertainty in the ethanol markets, I would say. Yeah, and so much of it, I feel like it's dependent on the the overall energy prices, crude oil prices, gasoline prices. But it's not the price. It's not the fault of corn prices. No, it's not like it's high not. priced corn is challenging right. ethanol profitability. So that's good. Yeah, that is good. Well, that's all the news I think we've got for today, folks. Let's jump over into today's commodity markets, which are sponsored by our partners at the Zaner Group. You can give them a call today at 312-277-0050 and get their, in, get their take on today's WASDE report. The March corn contract and beyond didn't really react to today's report, down a penny and a quarter at 354 and three quarters. The December down a half a cent at 388 and a half. The soybean pits were the ones to take that on the chin today. The March contract down seven cents at 883 and three quarters. The November down six cents at 930 and a half. Wheat had some strength today. I don't know why. The March contract up a penny and a quarter at 432 and three quarters. The May up a penny and a quarter at 439 and a half. Looking over at the livestock pits, we've got that kettle on feed report coming out here in just a little while. Going to talk about that on Monday. Looking into the live cattle markets, the April contract up 72 and a half cents on the day at 129.67 and a half. The August up 65 cents to close at 117.17. In the feeder cattle pits, the March contract up a dollar 02 on the day at 143.92 and a half. The May up a dollar 45 at 148.52 and a half. In the lean hog pits, a nice day here on the board, not quite limit up at 282 and a half in the April contract to close at 60.55. The June up two dollars and 65 cents to end at 78 17 and a half and as promised today's interview is all about ethanol with ethanol trader jordan fife well we're talking about ethanol production and trading today with jordan fife of bioergia who is the trading or who is the head of ethanol trading jordan thank you so much for taking the time to fill me in on ethanol today i'm excited about this conversation yeah, thanks for having me. Um, yeah, we're talking ethanol today. Um, we can uh, we can start with kind of 
the the ten thousand foot view yeah. will um, the margins right now. Let's actually oh, sure. can we back oh, yeah. it up and yeah, let's I, I wanna start with BioUrgia, the company itself, because that's not one I'm familiar with. So what does BioUrgia do and what do you do as the head of ethanol trading? Today, uh, be honest with you, but uh, joking aside, uh, we've been trading ethanol for about uh, fifteen years here at BioUrgia. Um, I've been here nine years. Uh, I, I started off as just a regular trader here and uh, about two years ago got promoted to head of ethanol trading. Um, we trade physical ethanol along with uh, paper ethanol, so options, swaps, and stuff like that. Uh, we trade about, if you look at it, uh, about 2.5-3% of the United States production hmm. of physical ethanol. Um, so we're trading rail cars, barges, we do imports and exports. Um, and, and we've been doing that, like I said, for about 15 years now. And so we're, we've kind of entered this period or maybe we're hopefully on the end of this period of ethanol scale back. When you look at production, was that the case for BioUrgia as well? In terms of, so right now, just again, you know, feeling a little bit more about BioUrgia, we don't have any production. We don't have any marketing. Okay, um, gotcha. But we do trade the physical barrel of ethanol. Um, uh, if I buy it, I got to sell it. If I sell it, I got to buy it. We are a prop trading shop. Um, that, 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 but our main focus is physical um, um, trading of ethanol. Okay, so maybe the better question then was, were you guys impacted by by plants scaling back on ethanol production and, and folks having really tight margins in the ethanol industry? Absolutely. Um, so we sell in the southeast a lot, for example. Uh, you know, delivering to majors, small mom and pop gas stations, large independent gas stations, and one of the ways that we were affected was we saw uh, a raising of the basis. Uh, you know, we, Rule Eleven is a large traded uh, focus for uh, for trading for ethanol, and we saw the basis for Rule Eleven spike about uh, six months ago. Um, so, if you're exposed to that basis, obviously, you need to find a way to mitigate your risk uh, and and move the barrel around. And I always say that the invisible hand of the market, uh, to paraphrase Adam Smith, will move that barrel. So we saw a lot of things moving down the river. We saw a lot of logistics strained. Um, and we saw the differentials uh, in our markets affected uh, by the slowing down, the, the lessening of production. And not only, you know, it's not just what we saw production scale back. We saw plants completely go yeah. offline. Yeah. And they're, they're not coming back. You know, Hopewell, Virginia, for example, uh, which was a GPRE plant, uh, is gone. And, and, you know, that was a 60 million gallon plant there in Virginia. We do a lot, like I said, in the Southeast. So we're in the Virginia market. Uh, and that obviously affected us there. We also are in Vicksburg, Mississippi, mm. uh, which is off of uh, uh, the Mississippi River, obviously. Ergon was a plant that was about a 57 million gallon plant that's gone. I mean, these two plants are, it's not that they've just slowed down, they've shut and are not coming back on. Uh, line. I believe they're probably going to be scrapped, to be honest with you. So again, we saw a lot more uh, barges coming down the river to Vicksburg. We saw a lot more rail into places like Richmond and Chesapeake, Virginia, to offset these plants that uh, had such a low margin that they basically shut their doors and, and will never come back. Jordan, maybe another question I should be asking too, because a lot of people haven't really maybe shared why we've seen such the tight margins in, in ethanol and why we've seen the scale back trickle effect from your perspective, what happened that made ethanol, you know, face this time of maybe uncertainty or, or smaller margins? 
Yeah, so I, I think you have to kind of rewind the tape in order to answer that question, right? I mean, if you look back at like 2014, 15, and 16 uh, at the DOE's numbers, um, the Department of Energy, they release how much ethanol we produce every single week, right? If you look back at 14, 15, and 16, we were averaging like, you know, uh, 9 million uh, gallons per day of production. But between 2016 and 17, we ramped up to like 232, mm-hmm. 233. And then by 2018, we were at like 10 million, 10.5 million uh, is about what we're averaging so far uh, throughout 2018. Um, so we had a giant increase in production in ethanol uh, and, and really explored, uh, you know, once you have that, there's only two things that can really happen. Domestically, we're going to have to take more, which mm-hmm. we are a little bit, or you're going to have to export more. Um, we kind of hit a wall with exports, in my opinion. Uh, last year, they just came out with this data, actually. We, we exported about one in 10 uh, gallons of ethanol, and that's a lot. It's the most ever. 2018 was the most we've ever exported as a country, uh, but there's really not a new market uh, outside of China, which right. I'll talk about later. <laughs> uh, <laughs> it's, a, it's a big one to talk about, right? Yeah. But, uh, but yeah, so my, my opinion is, is we had this giant ramp up in production and we've kind of hit a, a, a ceiling for how much we can produce and how much we can do. And then the other side of it is, you know, like I said, domestically, we can take so much and obviously E15, E85, higher blends. And I'm sure we can discuss that as well. But once you hit that wall, the margin is going to get squeezed. Uh, and that's what we're seeing right now. Okay. That makes sense. I mean, you don't have the, you don't have increased demand, but we have increased supply. Um, So let's talk about China since you opened that door. Obviously, there's a lot of uncertainty there on the trade front. We've got a lot of issues to resolve. But at the end of the day, I think most folks agree China can't produce the amount of ethanol they need to meet their ethanol mandate by I think it's 2020. Um, Let's say we don't even take up all of that market share, but just a portion of it. How much can that help us increase ethanol exports? No, it's a a big number because if you go back again to, I want to say it was 2016, uh, I don't have all the facts and figures Mm -hmm. in front of me, but I'm almost positive. In 2016, China was almost like 20% of our ethanol exports. Uh, The very next year, it was like five. Oh, Um, wow. And this is a big drop, right? And and, and then if you remember, the reason that it went down in 2017 versus 2016, pre-tariff wars and everything Mm -hmm. like that, uh, China put a 30, I want to say 30% um, um, tariff on United States ethanol. Uh, they started off, this is again, before any of the stuff that's going on right now, and that really affected us. Now, the good news was, is you know, once again, the invisible hand of the market kind of moved around and we started exporting more. But if they come back and they're, they're good for, you know, uh, uh, I think it was like 300 million in revenue was the last I saw the number of pre-tariffs on, on China. So the number is big. It's a significant amount of ethanol that they could start taking right away. Uh, and as you said, which I completely agree with, there's zero percent chance that they're going to be able to meet their mandate uh, by 2020 for an E10. It's just it's literally impossible. They don't have the corn. They don't have the production facilities. We are in the best position to export to them of anybody. And with that, let's say we do start to not even a lion's share of ethanol exports to China. Let's say we get a trade deal in place, we start exporting ethanol to China. What do you see that doing for ethanol basis and then in turn kind of the trickle-down effect into the corn market? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. Um, uh, you know, I think immediately we'll list, uh, uh, you know, the people that have uh, 
the ability to make China spec, the ability for uh, the people that have the ability to, to export. But again, that's kind of going to pull away from some of the other guys, uh, you know, UT and BN, uh, unit train destinations. Um, that's going to pull up their margins. Uh, it's going to start pulling down uh, the stocks. And if you look at stocks, mm-hmm. I mean, the, over the last year, we've just been building stocks every single, uh, uh, every single week. Um, the, the stocks use ratios going up. So that's going to draw that down. As it draws that down, um, you know, we're going to be in a much better position uh, as, a, as, a, as a country that's, you know, producing a, a lot of ethanol. Um, in terms of corn, that should absolutely help the corn price. Uh, you know, I don't know about board, but, but uh, basis-wise for anyone that lives uh, right. in near an ethanol facility. An yeah. Ethanol plant. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And then that circle just becomes a little bit bigger where they need more corn to produce more. Uh, so it, it is a positive impact for everybody, and I think everybody in ethanol wants to see its rate deal get done mm-hmm. uh, sooner rather than later. Absolutely. So the stacks to use ratio that you're mentioning there is that a concern for you long term if we don't see increased demand either domestically, which maybe we've hit a peak there, or export wise? Absolutely. Uh, and, and you know, the old adage, of course, and everybody's heard it is low prices fix low prices. High prices fix high prices. Mm-hmm. Well, the same is you know true for margin. Um, you know, we it's gonna it's gonna start shutting more plants or slowing more plants. It's the only way, the only other side of that equation, right? Uh, a smarter man than me once said, uh, "Time plus pain equals rationalization." And I think we've defined time, and I think we're, we've seen pain as well. Uh, without something new, we're just gonna see more plants slowing down or potentially shutting down, uh, which is unfortunate. Yeah, it is. I like all your adages there. Those are fun. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, I think really the other the other big piece of this ethanol puzzle that we really you mentioned it, but we really haven't addressed yet is the E15 year-round sales. We don't know, of course, there's uncertainty there from the administration if we're going to get it this year, if we're not going to get it by June 1st, but let's say we do get it by June 1st. Is it really going to change the ethanol balance sheet that much? I, and this is an unpopular opinion, by the way, um, <laughs> but it's one that I, I, I'm willing to discuss. Okay. Uh, but I, 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 I think no. Okay. I have talked to people in growth energy. I've talked to people in, in the RF, uh, RFA. Mm-hmm. The best analysis that I've read, in the, you know, I actually used to work in retail gasoline prior to working here. The best numbers I've seen is about 100 million extra gallons immediately with the existing infrastructure that we have. And can you put that in and perspective? 100 million extra gallons. What's that? Compare one that to one ethanol plant. Okay. It's one product. It's one ethanol plant. And unfortunately, or fortunately, depending on how you look at it, we have two ethanol plants coming online this year, mm. uh, or already have in Atlantic, uh, Iowa. Mm-hmm. And Rigneck and Atlantic is I want to say 140 million gallon plant, and Rigneck is I want to say 80 million. So it won't even negate what we have coming online uh, on E15. Now that's the immediate effect, and I get that. You know, that's the unfortunate side. Let's paint a little bit rosier picture okay. for everybody. That's listening. <laughs> yeah, because I don't want everybody to get mad at me. Right? Yeah, and they'll probably find me on Twitter or something. Everybody's yelling. Let's not do that. But, uh, so again, it takes the first step, and the ability to do that, uh, you know, first step to have the E15 is a win. It, it, it's just frankly a win. It's something that people have been fighting a long time for. So if you have that, and and you know, we have uh, a low ethanol to RBOB spread, which is gasoline, uh, and you, you can get that flashy number at the pump, 
that is way lower than just your other alternatives, you're going to start moving more. And then it becomes mm-hmm. uh, a marketing, it becomes advertising. And, and I know people, again, I, I worked in retail gasoline previously. How do they have more success? What do they need to label it as? Where do they put the price? These little things add up big. When you show it on the one, because uh, we all drive by gas stations every day, right? Mm-hmm. When you see, you know, a dollar eighty nine or $2 for gasoline, and then you see right below it the premium and the diesel. If you have another number on there that's way lower that says, you know, uh, E15, and it is 20 cents lower, that starts to move product a lot faster than when you get up to the pump and there's an extra handle or an extra button. People are just confused by that. When they see a low mm-hmm. price, people are drawn to it. It's just marketing 101. So again, the the first step is not an immediate like windfall for right. us at all. It's 100 million gallons-ish, which is nice. You know, in a, in a, in a, where we're at right now in stocks use, will take anything. It's going to be years to come to see real the real effect, in my opinion, of what it means to ethanol. Well, and and I think the other question that I've kind of had or posed to quite a few folks in the ethanol or E15 discussion is when you look outside of the Midwest, especially, it doesn't seem like you see E15 or E10 at the pumps. Is it that effect, too, that we need to see the East Coast and the West Coast or maybe the South or Southeast adopt that E10 or E15 at the pump? Absolutely. And, you know, and again, I'm, I was actually born in Indiana, so I love all the, the Midwest folks and everything like that. But unfortunately, when you look at population density, Midwest versus East Coast and West Coast, it's just there's more people that live in the East Coast and West Coast. Mm-hmm. Uh, so your demand is higher in, you know, East Coast, West Coast. And uh, I currently reside in Houston, Texas, and along where we live right now, I mean, I can tell you my commute in today was terrible, so there's plenty of people <laughs> that live here. But Joking aside, you're 100% correct. We need a bigger saturation of E15, E85, higher blends in these large population areas, you know, the Northeast, the Southeast, uh, and the West Coast. I did go to California not that long ago, and they, there was a couple places that did have hmm. uh, you know, advertised. And I think that, that has to do with the low-carbon fuel standard, the yeah. LCFS. So they were kind of moving along there, um, which is good. But for every one of those, I saw. I also saw an electric car charging. Uh, so I think those probably negate each other on the west yeah, coast. A yeah, yeah, probably. Well, Jordan, definitely going to have to have you back on to to talk ethanol again. If folks want to interact with you on Twitter because they have some questions or thoughts spurred by this conversation, how can they reach you? Well, that's very nice of you. Thanks for asking. Uh, I'm Jordan Fife One on Twitter, and uh, yeah, I, I might not know the answer to all the questions, but I'll try to find someone that does. If I don't. Awesome. Jordan, thank you so much. Appreciate it. Yeah. Thanks for having me. This is a lot of fun. Well, interesting discussion there with Jordan. I think it's so fascinating to learn about trading the physical and the paper because, I mean, a lot of folks that that we have on the podcast are only doing the paper. Yeah. Oh, and I think that it's so important. Like, that's where you really get to see the underpinnings, the nuts and bolts. Yeah. And knowing that helps you predict things that can happen Hmm. in, you know, when when you hear potentially geopolitical news. Like he mentions, you know, where does the ethanol go? So now our relationships with those countries affect the ethanol market Mm -hmm. in ways that they didn't maybe five years ago even. Yeah, interesting stuff. Very interesting. Elaine, I've got to ask, um, when are you going to write your Mastering the Livestock Markets book? Well, um, great question. (laughs) Not to put you on the spot here. I keep on saying that. I don't know, for the past five years, oh, I'll do it, I'll do it. And I, well, when I I feel like there's going to be a really robust market for it, I guess. Okay, a really robust market. Elaine, if folks want to interact with you on Twitter, how can they do that? I am on Twitter at Elaine Cub. Cub is spelled K-U-B. 
or uh, www.masteringthegrainmarkets.com. You can always find me on the internet. Awesome. Alinka, happy International Women's Day, and thanks for co-hosting with me today. I appreciate it. Thanks, Delaney. Have a good one. (laughs) 